Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The TalkSport Daily Podcast is proud to be in partnership with Enterprise Rent-A-Car. Whether your business needs cars, vans, or larger commercial vehicles, you can rent from the best lineup in the UK with Enterprise. And with flexible long-term rental, you can get vehicles for as long as you need them, from minutes to months. Whatever the mission, Enterprise's mobility experts can build a bespoke solution to suit your business needs. Visit enterprise.co.uk forward slash business to find out more. Welcome to Upfront with Les Ferdinand and me, Sam Matterface. This is the show that takes you into the world of the number nine, the centre forward, the goal getter. We try and find out what it takes to be a top flight striker. Oh, here goes Ferdinand. Ferdinand in the clear. Les Ferdinand does the business once again. We'll discuss their career defining goals, their ideal strike partner, and if it's simply about being in the right place at the right time. And Les Ferdinand, one of the most prolific goal scorers in the Premier League, was in the right place at the right time to nick it home. You're listening to Upfront with Les Ferdinand and me, Sam Matterface, on TalkSport. 215 goals in 523 games, a star for Queen's Park Rangers, Newcastle and Spurs, a Turkish Cup winner, a Football League Cup winner, a twice runner-up in the Premier League, a member of the Premier League 100 club, the scorer of the 10,000th goal in Premier League history and part of the most frightening partnership ever seen on this shore. Uh, I don't suppose I'm supposed to use the prefix, but I'm going to anyway. Hello, Sir Les Ferdinand. How are you? Hi, Sam. I'm very well, thanks. Not too bad. Good, good. Do you like Sir Les or is it is it something that you like? Because I can't help but call you Sir Les. I was talking to Mrs. Matterface and, and, <laughs> and putting in the uh, the calendar that I was doing this interview and it just says Sir Les. Uh, <laughs> and she asked me, have you done Sir Les yet? And it, do people call you that? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people don't when they see me call me Sir Les and, and a lot of people actually think I am a sir, um, which is quite funny. And I have to quickly remind and say, look, no, no, no, I'm not a sir. It's, it was a nickname that I was given. I've been called a lot worse in my time. And so I will take the the, the name Sir Les. <laughs> I imagine you're, you're you're busy nowadays being technical director, so there's not much time for reflection. But overall, how would you describe your career? Well, how would I describe it? Probably didn't win as much as I would have liked to have done. But I look back on my career and, and I and I feel satisfied to a degree of what what what what I went through and what I did. What sort of number nine? Stroke forward, stroke striker. Would you say you were? I was one that could play up on uh, up front on my own because I could ho- hold the ball up. I could run in behind. I could win. For, I could play in a two because I could. I could win flick-ons and and I could work off a, a, another centre forward. So I would say, looking back at uh, if you look at a traditional number nine who could hit, head it, who could hold it up, who could bring people into the game, I'd, I'd have thought that was that was me. You were Newcastle's number nine mm-hmm. until Alan Shearer came along. Did you yes. give that shirt up easily? There was no row about it. 
we was heading to the Far East for pre-season. I was in the, the airport. Uh, Kevin Keegan pulled me and he said to me, oh, listen, I just need to have a word with you before you jump on the plane. So I, I went into this little alcove with him and he said to me, look, I'm going to try and sign Alan Shearer. I think we're, we're, we're close to signing Alan Shearer. And I said, fantastic. And he goes, the reason I'm pulling you because I want you to know that once I sign him, you're going to hear loads of re reports in the, in the newspapers and stuff that your time's numbered at Newcastle and you're going to be leaving and blah, blah, blah. But he said, that's nothing could be further from the truth. I'm one of the few that believe that you two could play together. I'm not trying to do this to prove anybody wrong. I just know that you can play together. Um, so that's why I'm doing it. She said, OK, I really appreciate it. And so he said to me, I said, it'll be it'll be amazing for us. It's, you know, be icing on the cake. So um, I went to walk away and he went, oh, just one other thing. So I said, what's that? So he said, um, Alan's asked, could he have the number nine shirt? And I said, and what did you say? And he said, well, I said, I'd ask Les. I said, you, you said you'd ask me? So I said, yeah. He said, well, you know, Alan's worn the number nine all his, his career. I said, well, I've done it as well. And he said, oh, I didn't realise that. I said, OK, no problem. And I said, well, look, listen, the truth is, the mere fact that you've asked me asked me about it means you want him to have it. I understand where he's coming from. You know, he's, he's grown up as a Newcastle supporter, the number nine is the, the, the iconic shirt in Newcastle. So I had no, I had no um, qualms with Alan asking him about the shirt. I'd have probably done the same thing myself. Um, boyhood, uh, his boyhood hero, uh, Jackie Milburn, um, wanted to wear that number nine shirt. So um, I said, the mere fact that you've asked me means you want him to have it. So if that, you're the manager of Newcastle United, if you want that, that's what you've got to do. And that was it. And then there was all these rumours that, that came out afterwards that I asked for the number 99, I asked for the number 69, I asked for all these ridiculous things. The one thing I did do was I went to the kit man and I said to him, what's the next available shirt? I said, I didn't want to take anybody else's shirt. What's the next available shirt? He said to me, he came up with some numbers. And I remember he said 21, which I quite like the idea of, and 23. And I was a Michael Jordan fan back in, in the day. So I said, I'll go for uh, 23. And then the board came back and said, well, no, they want me to have a number between 1 and 11. I said, well, I had that. You took it off me. He said, what are you asking me for? <laughs> why, why, are you saying that? why are you saying that you want me to have 1 and 11? And, and then it, it materialised that Lee Clark was supposed to be leaving to, to, to, to go to Sunderland. And so the number 10 was going to become available. And that's how I ended up in the number 10 shirt. But there was no, there was no real arguments about it. It was only when they... Um, when they said to me about a number between 1 and one and 11, and I'd said what I said. To be a number 9, to be a number 10, whatever it is, as a striker, a centre-forward, what do you have to be? Do you have to be a little bit selfish, but also aware of everybody else that's in your team? Yeah, I think people look to you, um, depending on the type of the centre-forward. Well, listen, they look to you to score goals. So there's a, there's a selfishness in, in, in you that wants to score goals. There's a selfishness in you that, you know, you want that supply. You need to be on the end of things that come in, in, in the box. There's an expectation that goes with that. So, you know, sometimes as well as being selfish, you can can come across as being quite arrogant as well at times. Do you need to have those sort of personality traits? You need to be broad enough to carry that, though. I mean, I'm not saying you have to be arrogant, but you have to have yeah. that self-belief. Otherwise, there'll be strikers that you know just wilt under the pressure. Yeah, without a shadow of a doubt. I think if you if you look through history that most of the good and great strikers that have come out of this country or in world football have always had that that streak of selfishness in them. And when you're going through a, a phase in your career where things are not going as well, you start thinking about it. At the moment you bring thought into the process, you, you lose your rhythm. But uh, centre-forwards do things instinctively um, when they're in front of goal. And they'll take shots from places where people think, well, what are you doing? But when you're in that mode and in, your, in, in, that, in that frame of mind, you'll take those pot shots. And sometimes they'll they'll go in, sometimes they'll go 10 foot over the bar. 
but no one ever go because they know that's what you do. And did you back yourself? Were you one of those that really backed yourself? You weren't you weren't ever afraid at any point to justify why you'd done something to a manager, to a coach or to a teammate? No. Um, and like I said, it was... I never got into a situation. I always remember playing with Teddy at, uh, at Spurs and we said to each other, we'd never ever go at each other for, for having a shot from wherever they we, we had a shot from because at the time of doing it, you believed that you was going to score. That was a centre-forward's mentality. And I think most most managers, most, you know, they, if, you, if you'd if taken a shot and there was, a, there was a pass on, they might have gone, did you see blah, blah, blah, and you'd go, no. Because the truth is, you probably wouldn't have. <laughs> <laughs> have to be single-minded. Um, yeah. Let's let's warm you up with a couple of quick-fire questions, if possible. Get a sense of who Sir Les Ferdinand really is. Uh, what okay. was your favourite goal? Well, uh, favourite goal. One that springs to mind is the, my first goal for for Newcastle United. Yeah, Newcastle have the chance to cruise their way through, and Ferdinand's off on a major run here. Ferdinand, he's round the keeper. Ferdinand, what a tremendous goal for Les Ferdinand! his account and St James's Park erupts and Les says it in style. In the first game at uh, St James's Park, there have been a lot gone, gone on in the summer of me going there um, and pr- it probably weren't one of my best goals but it's probably one of my favourites because that going in the back of the net and seeing the the euphoria from the crowd at seeing their number nine score on the opening day of the season always lives in the back of my mind. It always puts a smile on my face because it was then I realised what that number nine meant to, to those supporters. What was the most important goal that you scored? Well, when I first got into the QBR side, I remember playing uh, against Luton on the AstroTurf. Don Howe was the manager and we were in trouble. Um, we was in real trouble. And um, we were down near the rele- down near the relegation zone. We might have actually been in the bottom three. And I remember scoring two goals at Luton that sent me on a run of scoring sort of like seven goals in the last nine games, I think it was. That was probably the most important goal because it kind of like kick-started me into to, to really feeling like I belonged at QBR. Who was your favourite strike partner? Alan Shearer was probably the one I enjoyed playing most with. Who was your childhood hero? Who did you grow up looking towards and thinking, he's my inspiration, I want to be like that guy? Muhammad Ali. Last night I cut the light off in my bedroom, hit the switch, was in the bed before the room was dark. Incredible. Fast. Incredible. And you, George Fullman, all of you chumps are going to bow when I whoop him. All of you. I know you got him. I know you got him picked, but the man's in trouble. I'm going to show you how great I am. Back in the day, I wasn't, um, there weren't a lot of black players playing in the, in the time of sort of like Muhammad Ali. When you looked at Muhammad, Muhammad Ali and what he was doing and what he was saying, you thinking, well, that's unbelievable. And, you know, the first sort of like black players I saw playing on a regular basis was probably, you know, Cyril Regis, Laurie Cunningham and Brendan Batson at, uh, at West Bromwich Albion at the time. And up until then, I mean, I, I, I had no thought of being a professional footballer. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No more. Ferdinand has the shot. Ferdinand scores! Let's Ferdinand! Brings Queen Spot Rangers back into it at 3-2. A wonder strike from the QPR striker. And Man United could do nothing about that. 
You played under four different managers in your decade, nearly a decade at Queen's Park Rangers, where it all really started for you. Um, who out of Jim Smith, Trevor Francis, Don Howe and Jerry Francis got the best out of you? Jerry, without a shadow of a doubt. You know, I thought Don was a fantastic coach. He was probably up there with the best coaches I've worked with, Don. But myself and Don had a, a clash of personalities that meant we didn't see eye to eye. So Jerry would be the one who put an arm around me. Um, Jerry knew how to get the best out of me. He was the one who came through the door, put an arm around me. And I I didn't realise at the time I was I was one of those players that needed that, needed the manager to put his arm around me and say, listen, you're my you're you're gonna be my number nine going forward. You know, Jerry came through the door, said to me, I see you playing for England. And I thought to myself, I ain't even playing with QBR at the moment, so I don't know how you see me playing for England. But, <laughs> but he did. And he worked with me and he worked with me and he worked with me. And um, you know, yeah, so for me, he's probably if I say the best manager at QPR, he's probably the best manager I worked with in, in my career. You say you weren't even in the QPR team. I suppose, in, in a sense, you were a bit of a late bloomer, weren't you? For for an, a guy who went on to be an international footballer and score 100 goals in the Premier League or more, 22 when you really got a proper run in the QPR yeah. first team. You know, I joined QPR at 19. Uh, I came out of non-league at 19. May was the end of the season and I joined QPR around around um, around the Easter time. And so there was like a month or so of the season to go and I managed to get on the bench for for a couple of games the next season was a bit of a blur for me. I didn't really get myself into the side. I had a few injuries. And I think that was just coming out and on the league and getting used to, to, to um, being a professional footballer. And then the opportunity came to go to Turkey. And then it was going out to Turkey at 21 that I really that really gave me the belief that I could play professional football. Or that that was my, I always say to people, that was my apprenticeship. I, I never I never did an apprenticeship as a as a, a young a, a young man in, in, in professional football. But going out to Turkey was the, the, the making of me, as, as a player and as a man as well. Ali, Ferdinand ve topağlarda gol 3-0. Ferdinand, Ferdinand Carlos'u mağlup ediyor. Swiss Park Rangers'tan gelen bir İngiliz futbolcu. Besiktas, not the easiest place to go to. I mean, you're in the heart of Istanbul. Yeah. It's it's a, it's quite a, a lively set of rivalries that you've got going <laughs> on there. Um, you say it, it sort of toughened you up a little bit. You, you did fantastic. I mean, you scored 14 goals in 24 games. Did you hit the ground running straight away? I did. Um, at the start of every season, they do they they do think they had a thing called the Presidents Cup, which was a, a game a, a match which was played between the Fenerbahce, Galatasaray, and um, Besiktas, who were the three Istanbul teams at the time. Um, and it was just a little competition. And I remember scoring against Fenerbahce in my first game. And then against the Colors of Sorai and everyone was like, who's this kid all of a sudden come from nowhere and is doing this? And um, But back then, Turkish football had a real high regard for um, English English football. So coming out of first division side, which would have been the equivalent of a Premier League side today, um, they had a high regard for me, even though I'd come out just playing not, uh, reserve team football. You know, So I, I went there and um, it was it was, like I said, it was the making of me. You scored bucket loads of goals eventually for Queen's Park Rangers when you did get into the team. And everyone thought that you were moving on at the end of every season in the early <laughs> 90s. Did you enjoy that speculation? Back in the day, uh, you'll remember this as well. You you could have been at a QPR, you could have been at a Luton, you could have been at one of these teams. Who, and as a centre-forward, you start the season as a winger. Whatever position you played, you started the season really well. The team got off to a flyer and everyone was doing well. And within a couple of months of you starting off that season and the team doing that well, someone would come and nick the centre-forward because they could. <laughs> 
people started saying this ain't right because it's unsettling the team and it's putting us in problems and blah blah. Hence why, in the end, they brought these um these transfer windows in because I always remember myself and Andy would Andy Sinton were tatted every year as they're leaving QBI, they're going here and they're going there, and you know there was there were occasions where I was, I was sat in my dad's house on a Sunday, and you know he opened the door to me and I'd walk in and he'd go, "What are you doing there?" So I said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, if you read this newspaper, you're in Liverpool at the moment, or you're in this, you're in this, but you're in this place, like, you know what I mean? I said, well, I know nothing about it, Dad. So, yeah, I mean, I, I stayed at QBR for as long as I felt I was learning. In hindsight, when I look back at my career, had I left QPR a year or two earlier, would I have achieved what I wanted to achieve? And that was perhaps winning more things. But, you know, I left when I felt I'd, I'd got to a point where I wasn't learning anymore. And 92, 93, this QPR team was the top team in London as I, I remember working for a radio station Capital Gold and listening to Jonathan Pierce, and it was one of the things he kept banging on and on and on and on about yeah and, and, and you know you, because we are QPR we weren't going to get the credit we deserve for that when you think of the teams that were in London at the time and you know your, your, your Arsenal's your West Ham's your Tottenham's you know Chelsea's and, and stuff like that and we were top London club it was some achievement for a, a club of our size and if you looked at our ways of build compared to all the rest of them we would have been well below it still Gillespie and Ferdinand he escaped the market completely and the finish once again was so decisive and from being a goal down Newcastle have turned it round they lead 2-1 both goals from Les Ferdinand. You went to Newcastle with Kevin Keegan, um, six million quid, which at the time was big, big money. Yeah. Some might feel the pressure, the number nine on the back of the black and white jersey. It's weighed heavy on shoulders of many others, but you thrived. Why do you think that was? Because, as, as I said, when I, when I left QPR, I had no doubt in my ability. I had no doubt wherever I went, I was going to go and score goals. You know, when I worked with Tim and Chris at at, at Tottenham, and it, and this this may sound arrogant, it may sound flash, I don't know, but I said to them, I used to sit in the, I used to sit in the changing rooms before a game, thinking, I know I'm going to score today. I'd got myself to that level that I felt, and you know, if you spoke to Alan, if you spoke to Andy Cole, if you spoke to Ian Wright, if you spoke to any of the the, the, the strikers that I've just mentioned who who, who were around at that time. I'm sure they went through periods in their career where they felt, yeah, no problem, I'll score today. You know, and I used to say to, you know, I'd go out and I'd, I'd say to them, well, just get the ball in the box. Just get the ball in the box, I'll score for you. And it wasn't, and, and, and like I said to them, it may sound, it may sound arrogant, it may sound flashy, it just wasn't. It was that you felt you'd got yourself to, in such good condition that you felt that it didn't matter what the, the circumstances you were going to score. That season was the best of your career, the 29-goal season. It's the season of 12 points clear. It's the yes. one that got away for Newcastle. Despite your belief, why do you think the title slipped out of Newcastle's hands, having had time to reflect on it now? I think uh, I think a couple, of, a couple of things. I think uh, too many of us lost form. There weren't many in that changing room that won things. I think Peter Beardsley. And I think Ginola, David Ginola had won something in Paris um, before coming to, to Newcastle. But other than that, there wasn't many in, that, in, in, our, in our changing rooms that had won things. So when we lost that first uh, three points, rather than a, a thing of, damn chaps, we've lost three points here, we've got to make sure this doesn't happen again, we've got to get back on our metal and all that, it was a little bit more like... That's all right. We've lost three points, but we got a game in hand, and with nine points clear, we get that three. We win that. The game. We'll win our game in hand, and we'll be twelve points clear again, rather than uh, 
a real sense of disappointment in losing those three points. And again, I think as well as a, as a group, we didn't really have any tactics. The tactics were, uh, I say we didn't have any tactics, our tactics were you score two, we'll score three. And as we know in the Premier League that, you know, there's got there's got to be games that you win 1-0. We just didn't have that. We were we were probably a little bit too gung-ho. Barnes, Rush, Barnes. Still John Barnes, Collymore closing in! Did you ever sort of bring that up with Kevin towards the end? Because no, because I, I loved it as a centre forward. You're, you're never going to bring it up, but you know, it's only now when you sit back and and analyse and, and and go for it, or you think, you know, because he gave us all that belief. He, we all had that belief that yeah, we're gonna we, we'll done that if they score, we, we'll score too. Don't worry. Look who we got in the team. We'll score too. Uh, I I mentioned it to him once, um, probably ill-advisedly. Um, <laughs> and he really didn't like the idea uh, of the tactics being described in that way. He got, he got quite cross about it. And, and I wonder now, having listened to you, whether or not that is because it's still even, tw- I don't even know how many years it is, 25 years on, yeah. it still affects him. Yeah, no, without a shadow of a doubt. And, you know, when he, he left the club the next year, um, you know, most of us believed that he hadn't recovered from the fact that we... We hadn't won the league that the, the year before. You and Alan, when you did uh, play together, were almost unstoppable, Alan Shearer yeah. and, and you. You scored yeah. 50 goals in 84 games personally for Newcastle. Um, in 96-97, you scored 49 between you. Am I right in saying, and after what you've already told me, I'm say, I probably am, that you, you used to give Alan a little pep talk before you kicked off? We'd stand in the centre circle. He might say it to me, I might say it to him, we'd say, shall we terrorise him today, Al? And he would say, "You go, listen. We should we ever get there today? We go, yeah, okay, come on in." And and just we just enjoyed our football. We just uh, we we enjoyed playing together. Um, I knew what I was going to get from him. He knew what he was going to get from me. And and if I weren't quite giving him what what what he wanted, he was down the back of my throat. He was like, "Are you?" Blah blah blah blah. And and and vice versa, you know. And um, it, it, it just clicked for us. Gillespie's corner. Up goes Ferdinand. Shearer and Ferdinand off the line. But it's squeezed in, and Shearer's got it this time. Did you become good friends off the pitch as well as on it? The great thing about that Newcastle side was I'd say that we were all great friends off the pitch. And, you know, every, everyone says to me, what was Alan like? What was Alan? And I, and I say, like, a load of the, the, the players I work with, he was a great fellow, you know, and I still speak to Alan today. I wouldn't say we were great friends off of it, but I would say we were good. We were decent enough friends off, of, off the pitch. Was there competition between the two of you as to who could get the most goals? I think both of us, we always used to say the same thing. The one thing we wanted to do was we wanted Newcastle to win games of football. And I think that's why we got on got on so well. I wouldn't go on the pitch thinking, I need to score more than Alan. Or, you know, you know I'm sure Alan went on the pitch. I'm not sure if he, he felt the same. But my, my, my goal was for the team to win. And if I was in a position where I could slide Alan in and he scored a hat-trick, that was all well and good for the team. Of course, I'm a centre-forward, so I want to score goals. So um, I always put myself in positions where I could score goals. Um, but I wasn't sitting there thinking, oh, I need to show everyone that I could score more goals than Alan. Why did you leave? Again, I think a few clubs had come in and Newcastle needed to raise some money. At the time, I was, I think I, they, they signed me when I was uh, 28 and I was, they paid £6 million. Pound. I, they had two years out of me. Obviously, Keegan had gone, Daglish had come in 
and they wanted to raise money. My name had been touted about a little bit. And in the end, I agreed to uh, Tottenham uh, made the, the bid and they accepted the bid. Uh, and then I remember coming down to London on a Friday to do a medical and uh, Newcastle were going to Everton, Goodison Park, to play in the Umbro tournament. And Alan broke his ankle. And I remember sitting in a restaurant on, on a Saturday night, my agent calling me saying, Les, um, Alan's broken his ankle. And my first thought, I've got to get on the phone and, and call him and see if he's OK. And I went, oh, thanks for letting me know. I'll give him a call now. And as I went to put the phone down, my agent went, Les, Les, Les, hang on, hang on. And Newcastle need you to come back. want you to come back. Um, and I went, what? And there was a lot of... Uh, backing and forthing um, because everyone knows I didn't want to leave I didn't want to leave Newcastle at the time but because of the way things had gone because of the way things had happened meant this this came to light and always remember them saying oh, um, they want you to come back I went oh, they want me to come back now do they uh, a little while ago they were saying no it's alright you can go so anyway uh, I probably left more out of pride than what was probably the right thing for my footballing career that is fascinating, isn't it? That they, mm. they, they, they called you back and said, no, no, no, we need you now. Yeah. That conversation, did you have it with Kenny Dalglish? No, no. Uh, the thing was, because they'd accepted the bid, they weren't able to speak to me. They could only speak to me through my agent because they've ex they'd accepted the bid from Tottenham. So I was scheduled to go meet Tottenham on the Sunday, uh, Alan Sugar, and I was going around Alan Sugar's house. But they came down to my agent's house in North London and, and had a meeting with the agent and said, well, look, this is what we've put on the table for Les. This is what he gets if he comes back. Um, you know, if he comes back, he'll be a hero and this, this, this and this. And I remember speaking to Alan in the morning and, and I said to him, look, Al, the truth is if I go to Spurs and I like what Alan's got to say, I'm going to sign there. And he, he went, I'd love you to come back, but I understand why you'd do that. And he said, I'd probably do the same. And I, I always say to people now that I, I probably made this decision based out of pride rather than out of what was the best thing for my footballing career. Plenty more to come on up front with Les Ferdinand as he tells us what it was like to share a dressing room with Jurgen Klinsmann. And I could remember he was in a foul mood and no one could understand it. I was sitting there thinking, yeah, I understand it. I know why <laughs> you're in a foul mood. And this is up front with Les Ferdinand and me, Sam Matterface, on TalkSport. this is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This episode of the TalkSport Daily is brought to you by Enterprise Rent-A-Car. Planning to hire or share a car or van? Enterprise is there every step of the way. Whenever and wherever you need a vehicle and whatever it's for, Enterprise can help. With over 450 locations across the UK, they're just around the corner. Whether you need a weekend rental, a holiday hire, a replacement car, or you're planning a business trip, home or away, Enterprise are there to help. To find out more and book, visit enterprise.co.uk. Ages a fair bit. Strikers usually are the ones that get the headlines. How did you cope with the attention, especially in a goldfish bowl like Newcastle? This is where Kevin Keegan was was, was fantastic for me. When I went to Newcastle, I sat down before I got there, um, before I agreed to sign and everything. He said to me, "Look, the one thing I will say to you, son," he said, "is look, there's there's no hiding place." And I was like, "What?" Well, he said, "In London, you can get away. You can do. You can go places. You can do things because there's so many famous people in London. You know, people are not really bothered in London. You can you can go about." He said, "Newcastle, everything's about football." So he said to me, "What do you want to do?" So I said, "What do you mean?" He said, uh, "Is there anything you'd like to do?" I said, "Well, look, I'd like I'd like to learn how to cook. I'd like to learn how to play the saxophone. I'd like to learn how to ride a motorbike." And he went. Uh, I might, be able to, I might be able to deal with two of them, but I'm not sure I could deal with a third one. And I went, what was that? He said, well, the riding of motorbike. So I went, OK. He said, but let, let's let's think about it. So I got there and um, I learned to ride a motorbike. I learned to play the saxophone and I learned how to cook. So, um, you know, that, that took up my time. And I was really fortunate. I, I, I really, really was uh, fortunate, Sam, because in the two years that I was there, OK, the first year we should have we won the title. But for the, for for ninety five percent of the season, the place was on and up. In in in terms of the the, the football that we played and where yeah. we was in the league, so I didn't really see a bad time there. If that you know, apart from us not winning the league, obviously yeah, everyone was depressed and disappointed. But after that, after the season was over, I came back to London, so I didn't see the doom and the gloom that was around the town. If that makes sense, and then obviously the start of the next season, everyone's buzzing again because the season's about to start and blah, they've missed football and, and we go again. And in two years, we finished second in the league twice. So, um, like I said, it was it was always an upward curve there. I never really experienced a bad time. So I was very, very fortunate in, in terms of that. Um, the football was that good that, you know, it, people were enjoying what they were coming to watch week in, week out on, on, on most occasions. Um, so I was able to get away with a bit more and then it was there that, Keegan had put Sank out about the fact that, um, you know, I was on my own and I, I you know, I was, he, he'd done, he'd done some, you know, like fans forum sort of thing. And he said, like, you know, I'd, I'd learned to do these things. And then someone came on to me about saying, look, I know 
you're trying to keep yourself busy, would you like to learn how to fly a helicopter? And I went, I've gone from motorbikes to even date I'm saying even more dangerous than me learn how to fly a helicopter. So um, I went, yeah, it took my attention and um, kind of like got into it back then. And before I had my lesson there um, in Newcastle, I came back to, to London uh, and, and signed for Tottenham. But it was something that was in my head now and I, I, I just um, continued to do it. And you become a pilot? Yeah, I did, yeah. I mean, do you, do you, do you, is it similar sort of, I know it sounds stupid, is it a similar sort of mindset? Do you have to be a certain, do you have to have a certain level of confidence of, not arrogance, but of self-belief? I think first and foremost, you sort of want to do what, whatever it is that you're, you, you've set out to do. And, and for me, I wanted to, you know, once I, I, I did the first lesson, I was like, nah, this is something I need to do. I want to pass my, I want to pass my test here. So you, you put your concentration into it. I mean, there was a seven, I think there's seven exams you've got to do along the way. Um, learn about air law, uh, meteorology, human biology, um, radio tech. There's um, all sorts of things that you've got to learn along the way. And so I just got my head down and I thought like, you know, I was I was travelling away to away games and in the hotel I was I was studying. <laughs> I was studying for my exams rather than doing anything else like, you know. Uh, do you have your own helicopter? How often do you fly it? And who, who's your most famous passenger? Um, I had um, I had my own helicopter um, for a, a bit, um, and, and basically I used to just go. I mean, when I when I played uh, at, uh, at Bolton, I used to fly to to Barton Airport in the mornings, uh, leave the, the helicopter there. Again, Sam Sam Allardyce was brilliant with me. He'd say, right, okay, we're playing in London on on Friday. You go back to London on the Wednesday or the Thursday. I'd fly back to to, to London and I'd meet them in the hotel on the Friday. So, you know, I just used it when I had my own helicopter. I've sold it now, but when I had my own helicopter, I just used it ad hoc, really. And probably I weren't using it enough, and that's why in the end I I ended up getting rid of it. No famous passengers then? I had uh, had Jamie Redknapp and Tim Sherwood in it. They were doing doing, um, a bit for a magazine. I remember flying back from... The last cup final in Cardiff, and I, I came. I was coming back, and I had Jeff Shreves and Jamie in in the helicopter, and we had to we had to land we had to land at um, Bryce Norton because the weather the weather came in and it was that bad that I didn't you know the the, the one good thing about the machine and if you're sensible um you, you know when when there's bad weather you just put it down on the ground you find the field and you put it down on the ground but when I was going through. I was speaking to Bryce and, I, and, and they said, look, you, you can't really go any further because loads of the helicopters have landed at um, Elstree and other places because they couldn't they couldn't continue their journey. So I said, can we come in there? And they said, yeah. So um, I think they were a little bit nervous because obviously the weather was coming in, but managed to land it in Bryce Norton with no, not too much else. And we had to get a cab the rest of the way home. <laughs> <laughs> you were a great goal scorer. Uh, but there's always another side to it, isn't there? The, the, the times when things don't go as planned, the goal drought or when a move yeah. doesn't go as expected. Um, how do you deal with that? And and do you think that the first couple of seasons at your boyhood club Spurs fall into that category? Yeah, I think, I mean, my first couple of um, seasons at Spurs, I think obviously there was, I was going, I, I, was, I was transitioning from, from a club who saw themselves as a big club in Newcastle and they did everything that I would I expected a big club to do. And I always remember when I was at when I was at um QPR, you know, Ray Wilkins used to speak to me and Ray was one of my, my, my biggest mentors. I always call him the late great Ray Wilkins. He used to say to me, When you go to a big club you'll understand because they do things in a in a, in a big way. Um and you'll see their mentality and you'll understand. 
I used to go, okay, okay. And then when I went to Newcastle, um, although Newcastle, and it all depends how you describe a big club, is it someone that wins loads of stuff? Is it the the, the, the supporters, what, you know, what it, whatever it is. But, you know, I saw Newcastle as a big club. They had a big club mentality. So everything they did was uh, kind of like top draw. It was like, it's like, and, and how I describe it, it's like going to the post house or going to, to, to the Ritz, you know, and, and they did everything like they was at the Ritz, you know, um... And when I went to Spurs, it was probably the opposite of that. Although I'd seen Spurs as a big club all my life, um, they were probably the opposite of that. But I kind of like knew they were trying to build and get the club back to to where to former glories, and it was going to take time. <laughs> You won the League Cup with Spurs in 1999 and, and for a club, as you say, it was trying to rebuild and to, to make itself bigger again and doesn't win that many trophies. It must have been quite a, a special day. I mean, it wasn't a classic cup final, but it was a special no. day. Yeah, certainly. I mean, you know, as a kid, you dream about playing at Wembley, although you do dream about playing in Wembley in the FA Cup final. But any final, but playing at Wembley, just being there and, and, you know, you remember sort of like watching the FA Cup as a kid and watching them at the hotel, getting on the coach and all the things they did, all right, the lead up all the way to Wembley and then watching the game and, you know, OK, we were doing this in the League Cup and it's always it was always a bit strange because the League Cup's always played before the end of the season. But still, it was a cup final and it was at Wembley and, and we managed to win it. As you said, it wasn't a classic game, but um, we managed to win it. So um, it was nice to go up them stairs and, and, and, and live a boyhood dream. Eventually, you hit it off on the pitch with Jurgen Klinsmann, didn't you? What was that partnership like? Yeah, I mean, Jurgen, you know, because it was our time together was so short, you always, you know, always, I say forget, but, you know, when people talk to me about the great strikers I've played with, you know, because Jurgen weren't just a great striker, he was a great fella as well. When you talk about strikers, when that arrogance and that, that selfishness, I always remember Jurgen and as nice as a fella as he was off the pitch, and he was, he was a great fella off the pitch, I always remember coming in in a game that we won at White Hart Lane, and I think we won 3-1 or something like that, and he hadn't scored, and he he was in a foul mood, and no one could understand it, but being a centre-forward, I could understand it. it. It was probably more than three, because that's why he had the arm, because it was more than three, and he hadn't scored, and I could remember he was in a foul mood, and no one could understand it, and I was sitting there thinking... Yeah, I understand it. I know why you're in a foul mood. The, the fact that we won and we won by so many goals and you haven't scored. You know what I mean? And that was just, you know, that trait we talk about centre forwards having. But he was great to play with. He came to the club and we were in a real precarious position at the time of him coming to the club. You know, he came through the door and he was one of those players. When, they, when he comes through the door, he, there's a bit of an aura around him that you think, yeah. We don't mind him coming to help us because we know he is going to help us. Do you know what I mean? And um, him and Nicola Bertie, and um, we managed to stave off that um, being near the bottom of the, of the table and um, survived in the, the Premier League. Ferdinand takes it on himself. Now Klinsman for a fourth! <laughs> They're walking in the Klinsman wonderland. There was a second League Cup final for Spurs. Yeah. wasn't there um, and it was one of those days where you get chance after chance after chance and you come up against the goalkeeper who just keeps making saves you ended up losing that final did, did you have to sort of walk away from that final thinking to yourself he's just had an absolute worldie you, you can't do anything about it 
Yeah, I mean, we was, we was, you know, there was chance after chance. Myself, Gus Poirier, there was so many chances in the game. Um, and even when we, we beat the goalkeeper, we kind of like hit the bar or the post. It was just, it was, you know, and then you get to a stage in the game where you start thinking, we just ain't going to win this today. We ain't going to have this off today. Do you know what I mean? And um, you walk away from it and you think back of the chances you had and you think in most games you, you score half of those chances, but you just weren't to be in, in that game. And we've seen loads of games like it where, you know, a team is out there and you say they could have been out there for another 90 minutes and they would never have scored, you know. And they've got the quick break and he's away, Les Ferdinand. Can he make it too? Oh, yes, a classic break. And England may have put this World Cup tie beyond Georgia in the first 35 minutes. Alan Shearer was the perfect foil for you at Newcastle. Were you, were you surprised that you weren't used more together for the national team and it wasn't replicated more for England? Yeah, I mean, you know, we sort of like um, our, our time at Newcastle together came sort of like uh, the back end of Terry Venable's reign. And we were, you know, when I went to Spurs, I was now 30, yeah, 30, 31. So I knew then the, the chances of us playing together. And I think Glenn Oddle tried to do it a few times. But um, before that, you know, um, you know that, that the season where I, you said, you know, my best season at Newcastle was uh, scored 29 goals, a PFA player of the year. We go to the Euros and I don't play in one game, one minute of uh, of, of any game. And, you know, you tend to look around, if you, you look around Europe and or world football and you say that don't happen in no other country in the world. Mm -hmm. Normally a player that's done that. I was up to like 20 goals before Christmas and I still weren't in the England side. I wasn't even in the squads. And then I think there was a big thing from the papers going, how comes this, you know, Les Ferdinand scoring all these goals and, and, and he's not in the English squad. And then I got back into into the squad. I just don't believe I was, you know, Terry Venables type of player. Myself, Andy Cole, um, we just weren't his type types of player. So you're in the the Euro '96 squad, um, mm -hmm. yeah. but didn't really get the opportunity to play. What was it like being in that squad when you knew that everything was going on around you? It was an iconic tournament. The whole nation is sort of is almost smothering you because you're sort of hyper aware of everything because it's in this country. Whereas other tournaments, maybe that wouldn't have been the case. Yeah, and I think as as well, if you go, if you look, if you go back to, if you remember back to '96, that the, the coming into the tournament, the country was in a bit of a doldrum, but everybody got behind the the the, the, the national team, and you know, it was the first time I, I say to people, it was the first time I'd I'd seen women at football before, but it was it was the first time I was seeing women coming from the office and going straight to a game. You know, just everybody, but everybody got behind the team, and it was it was great to be part of that, and it was great to feel feel that. But if you're not playing out on the pitch, you do not feel part of the team and you do not feel part of what's going on. And, and you felt like that? Yeah, 100%, yeah. What about the 98 World Cup? I mean, that the 98 World Cup is, it was pretty ironic as well because I've got to be honest, um, because of my injuries and stuff that I had at, at Spurs that, that year, I didn't expect to go. I had a, a recurring Achilles problem that kept coming back to me and in the end it was in the after the 98 um, World Cup that I had, to, I had the operation on it but I, I wasn't expecting to go because my form hadn't been great and um, I'd, I'd had a few injuries throughout the season and then Glenn had got in contact and, and brought me back into the squad I was in the squad and I was training and he's going look I'm going to put a B, a B international on just to get you some game time because I know you haven't had a lot of game time and we played myself and Matt Letizia played in a, a B international at Loftus Road uh, against Russia and um I think that was the last B international that was ever played. 
um, just to try and get some game time. And even leading up to it, I was like, nah, you know, Dion Dublin was doing well, Wright was doing them. But then I think Wright broke his ankle, did something to his ankle just yeah. before the, the competition. And I think that, that held me into into into that place. Um, so I wasn't expecting to play. And I always remember, and it's quite ironic, um, I was, uh, we was playing against Argentina and I was warming up behind the goal because you had to, you couldn't warm up alongside, you had to go behind the goal and warm up. So I went to, to warm up. Glenn Rode had called me, said, are oh, you going on? Come. So I ended up jogging back with Glenn Rode, got my, my shirt on and got everything ready. Glenn was just telling me, blah, blah, blah. And as he's telling me, I'm standing on the side of the pitch and David Beckham kicks out at uh, Simone. Wait a minute, he's taking another card out for Beckham. It's a red card for David Beckham. So Beckham is out of the game. And Glenn looks at me and he says to me, Les, I need to put someone on that could play midfield and, and centre-forward, which was obviously uh, Paul Merson, because um, Paul used to play as a, as a 10 back then. And so um, he looked at me and, I, and like, there was nothing I could say, do you know what I mean? All I, could, all I remember is David, David's uh, uh, foot coming up and just clipping Simone and Simone going down like he'd been shot. And I was like, oh, no. Anyway... Um, I was thinking, don't send him off, don't send him off. Then, so it was, you know, obviously the referee sent him off, and um, the rest is history. And so that that that tournament now, I look at it and I go, you know, well, look, I've gone to another tournament, not not got on, but that was due to circumstances more than anything else. I was I was going on the pitch, I I was ready, I had my shirt on, I was ready, and I was I was being given in my instructions. And then that happened, and I just went, well, well it's not meant to be. Now, when next time you see him, you can you can give him a bit of uh, a verbal volley. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's well forgotten now. Later in your career, you found yourself at Leicester. Uh, you, yeah. you were 37 and still scoring goals in the Premier League. I think were you their Player of the Year uh, I was, yeah. that season? What did you do to maintain your fitness and sharpness for so long? I have to sort of like look at uh, Mickey Adams um, when I went there. He said to me, "Look, you know, come and have some fun with us and blah blah blah blah blah." And what they did, they they tapered my training. Um, so you know, at thirty at thirty seven, they knew I wasn't going to cut any corners. I was gonna I was gonna do whatever I needed to do to get myself fit enough to play football on on a, on a Saturday. Um, and it, and it, he liked what he saw. Um, so at the end of training, when there was all this running, you know, Mickey was very heavily into to, to, to running the squad. He would say no, and I said, Mick, we're the fittest team in the league. I always used to argue. I said, we're the fittest team in the league. And he goes, you don't need to do this, lads. And I went, well, I'm part of the lads, and if they if they need, if they're going to do it, I need to do it as well. He's going, no, no, no, I don't want you to do it. We can do something else with you. And, and, and to be fair, they tapered my training to make sure that I could play games on a Saturday, Tuesday, Monday, whatever it was that the, where the games were coming. And um, I always say to people, people say to me, as you carry on playing football for as long as you did, it was because I loved playing football. Uh, I love scoring goals. I love being part of a team. Um, uh, and I still felt I could give something to a team. Layoff is for Freund. Here's Schimmicher. There's some method in this from Leicester. Benjamin. Is it going in? And Ferdinand scores! Les Ferdinand makes it Leicester 1, Birmingham 0. After being relegated with, with, with Leicester in that year, and as you said, scored, and I, I ended up scoring, I think, 14 goals in, in 20 odd games again, I think it was something like that, some, somewhere around that figure. I always remember sort of like sitting at home thinking, right, that's it, I'm going to announce my retirement. And then Sam Allardyce uh, gets in contact, and I, I meet Sam, and I said, listen, Sam, I, I really appreciate the offer, but I'm thinking that, you know, my time's, my time's over now, you know, and he went, no, your time's not over. And that was when I realised how sophisticated football had become because Sam was able to give me all my stats 
of what I'd done the previous season, my running stats, um, my sprinting stats, my goals compared to this, that and the other. And he went, you still got too much to offer football to retire. And I went, uh, I tried telling my body that. I said, my girlfriend, I'm going to wake up in the morning. My missus is saying to me, Les, please retire. And I said, I used to be like Superman. I'd get up and I'd, I'd get off the bed and I'd walk like, I'd be limping, I'd be doing this, that and the other. And she'd go, Les, she'd look at me, she'd go, Les, just retire. And I'd go in the shower and I'd just come out like a new man, like, you know, I was bouncing around. It was like Superman going in that uh, telephone box and, and, and putting the cape on and coming back out. As soon as I come out of the shower, I was, I was right and ready to go again, do you know what I mean? So, yeah, Sam persuaded me to play for another another year, and um, but I didn't really get to play, uh, hence why I left at, at Christmas time, because I said to him, if, I, if it was going to be my last year, I wanted to play. Which he was quite stunned by, because he went, you're earning good money, you're sitting on the bench, you're coming off. I said, Sam, if it's my last year... I don't want to sit on anyone's bench and earn money. I said, I want to play. You know, I've, I've played all my career. I don't want to sit on anyone's bench and go, right, OK, yeah, I'm happy to earn this. And blah. And he, to be fair, he admired it. And that's why he let me go to, to, to Reading in the end, because um, I, I, I just still wanted to play football. We started by uh, opening the interview talking about you being nicknamed Celez. And you pointed out that you aren't actually a knight of the realm. But you were made an MBE in the 2005 Queen's Birthday Honours list. Yeah. How important is that honour to you? Um, I mean, when I always remembered standing in, in the line and, and I was listening to firefighters, I was listening to, um, you know, policemen and, and people go up and what they were being honoured for. And I, and I turned around and I said, I, feel, I said to a fireman, I feel like I'm not worthy of this. Um, when I listened to you guys saving lives and, and, and this, that and the other, and he turned around and he said to me, Les, you've put smiles on faces of millions of people's faces year in, year out for donkey's years. He said, enjoy it. And it kind of like made me think of it in a different way. And um, yeah, obviously you're honoured to, to, to, to, to have that accolade and, and, and be given that MBE. And it was a nice, it was a nice day for, for, for me and my family. At the end of these interviews, we've been sort of testing our number nines, our forwards. We call it the perfect hat-trick. Um, we sort of test to see how well you know yourself. Three questions all about you. Um, um, how well do you know yourself, do you reckon? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go, I know myself really well, but then you're going to ask me the question and I ain't going to get one right. No, no, no, no. You, you'll, you'll smash this, I'm sure of it. Um, sure. You won your first piece of silverware in Turkey whilst at Besiktas. It was the Turkish Cup final. Um, who did you beat on aggregate and what was the score? We beat Fenerbahce on aggregate and if I'm not mistaken, the score was 3-1. Correct. When you transferred to Newcastle for 6 million quid, Hayes mm. got a sell-on fee. What did they do with the money? They built uh, a new clubhouse uh, and they called a room, uh, Les Ferdinand room. Yep, the Ferdinand uh, Suite. The Ferdinand Suite, yeah, that's it, yeah. <laughs> um, you scored the 10,000th goal of the Premier League era in December yep. 2001. But who was it against? It was four Spurs. Who was it against? Fulham. It was indeed. Look, see, you, you absolutely <laughs> smashed it like you did the rest of your career. You put them all away. Davis.
You've been listening to Upfront with Les Ferdinand and me, Sam Matterface. And if you missed any of the show or want to catch up, you can download the podcast from the TalkSport Game Day feed, available on Apple Podcasts, Acast and Spotify. The TalkSport Daily Podcast is proud to be in partnership with Enterprise Rent-A-Car. Whatever your mission, home or away, don't delay. Enterprise has the vehicle for the job. Rent from the best lineup in the UK. With over 450 branches, Enterprise has what your business needs. From compact three-door cars to spacious SUVs and people carriers to vans, they offer a large range of reliable vehicles perfect for the job. To find out more and book, visit enterprise.co.uk.